The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. What madness is this? This is Thursday, February 21st, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. It has been a week of bombshells in the Trump-Russia investigation, and new such revelations are expected to drop in the week ahead, but we begin today with bombs of a more deadly kind. A white nationalist who made it to lieutenant in the United States Coast Guard allegedly plotted to kill civilians, Democratic leaders, and government officials, as well as members of the media, including anchors at CNN and MSNBC. Democrats and CNN have been among Trump's Twitter targets. Now under arrest, this self-proclaimed white nationalist, Christopher Paul Hassan of Silver Spring, Maryland, targeted Nancy Pelosi, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Chuck Schumer, Cory Booker, Richard Blumenthal, Kamala Harris, CNN's Don Lemon, and Chris Cuomo, as well as MSNBC's Chris Hayes, Ari Melber, and Joe Scarborough. The government says Hassan, a former Marine also, had been stocking up on steroids and human growth hormone to carry out a massive terror attack. He hoped that attack would also include biological weapons. Investigators quote a draft email by Hassan that reads in part, I am dreaming of a way to kill almost every last person on earth. He had written to an American neo-Nazi leader to say, we need a white homeland as Europe seems lost. Russia, meanwhile, says it may target the United States with nuclear warheads. Russian President Vladimir Putin told his parliament this week that if the U.S. uses its withdrawal from a long-standing nuclear treaty to put new missiles in Europe, Russia will also position new missiles aimed at America's European allies and at the United States mainland itself with a focus on decision-making centers. Those centers would likely include, among others, Washington, D.C. and CENTCOM Central Command in Tampa, Florida, just a few miles from this studio. Pulling out of that nuclear weapons treaty was the decision of a president who suspected of being a witting or unwitting agent of Russia, a president under criminal counterintelligence investigation for an apparent conspiracy with Russia to thwart a U.S. election. The Trump administration also appears to have broken the law by trying to give nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia, home of a journalist murdering prince defended by this president. The plan involves building nuclear power plants throughout the Saudi kingdom, a kingdom so rich with oil and sunshine and wind, the last thing it needs is another source of energy. But nuclear power plants also produce the stuff from which nuclear weapons are made, which is why the U.S. and the world have such strong laws against info-sharing the secrets of nuclear technology. The current Saudi government has hinted repeatedly of late its desire to have nuclear weapons. But Trump administration officials have pursued this project over the emphatic objections of White House lawyers who do, in fact, believe such a business deal would be illegal. All of this and more can be found in a new report from the now Democratic-led House Oversight Committee based on information from multiple whistleblowers who were rightly alarmed at what they saw unfolding. The first of the whistleblowers came forward nearly two years ago, but were unable to get a rise out of the committee while it was under Republican control times have changed. This committee's new report explains that the nuclear project was promoted inside the White House by Trump's first national security advisor, Mike Flynn. Flynn had worked for the company that wanted to export that technology to the Saudis. 
But White House officials continued to pursue the plan even after Flynn was gone. And according to the committee's report, it was still being pursued as recently as last week. Because this would be a change in U.S. foreign policy, House Democrats say more investigation is needed to see if the plan is in the national interest or whether it's simply to help make some people richer. The House Intelligence Committee, now led by Democrat Adam Schiff, is joining Judiciary's investigation. And Special Counsel Robert Mueller continues his investigation into Trump's relationship with Saudi Arabia and whether that country also provided illegal foreign assistance to the Trump campaign. And federal prosecutors were and may still be investigating Trump's business ties with the Saudis. In the meantime, with Trump as the U.S. president, Russia is threatening to target the U.S. mainland, while Saudi Arabia continues to work a deal that would make it a nuclear power. What madness is this? Questions about the fitness of Donald Trump to serve as president were tossed about at the FBI and in the Justice Department from the moment he fired FBI Director James Comey. Former acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe confirmed this week that there were discussions about seeing if the president's cabinet might remove him from office using the 25th Amendment, reserved for presidents, quote, unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, end quote. But it would take agreement from both a vice president and a majority of the president's cabinet to achieve that. And although invoking the 25th was probably not a viable option, the deputy attorney general wondered if there might be enough votes among cabinet members to, quote, count noses. Rosenstein, still at the Justice Department for now, says that's not how he remembers it. But Rosenstein does not deny that the 25th Amendment had been discussed in the top ranks of the nation's top law enforcement. Over the past few days more than ever, Trump has justified that concern. Never mind that he's not as good at negotiating as he had led half the country to believe. Democrats were careful not to gloat when they got the president to sign a budget bill that kept government open without money for his wall. They knew that poking the bear might cause him to veto the deal and shut down government for a second time in two months. Trump's advisors urged him to stay cool, reminding him he could always get his wall money by defying Congress and using his authority to declare a national emergency. And that is what he did, against the advice of his fellow Republicans in Congress. Trump was 38 minutes late for his 10 a.m. appointment to announce his emergency. In a bizarre Rose Garden speech, he hit a number of topics before even getting to his emergency. His ad-libbed remarks had the feel of a very odd campaign speech, this emergency announcement. In it, he claimed his re-election odds looked good, that he'd been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, and he sang the praises of radio's Rush Limbaugh and TV's Sean Hannity. He went on like that for 15 minutes before finally getting around to the emergency. In the question and answer session that followed, he barked at reporters to sit down and condemn the statistics in their questions as fake news. He spewed his usual disinformation, including the one about the monstrous caravans headed for the border. He even repeated the one about women gagged with duct tape to be smuggled across some part of the Mexican border that doesn't have a wall. That thing he saw in that movie Sicario that one time. And more lies, including, I built a lot of wall. He hasn't. Not a mile of it. A big majority of the big drugs, the big loads, don't go through ports of entry, he said, insisting they cross at unbarricaded borders. That's not true. The opposite is true. The president was telling the opposite of the truth. The familiar falsehoods and fear-mongering there in the rose garden of the people's house. 
Trump spoke his usual word salad nonsense, telling reporters, quote, you have stats that are far worse than the ones I use, but I use many stats, but I also use Homeland Security. Sniffing repeatedly and slurring his words occasionally, he rambled from one topic to the next and then foolishly said of his emergency declaration, quote, I didn't have to do this. Now it's an emergency he didn't have to do. And he'll come to regret those words in the many court challenges to building this emergency wall. At the end of his speech, in the face of this national emergency, the president flew to Mar-a-Lago to play golf for the third day in a row. Over the weekend, he would tweet a quote from Rush Limbaugh about the investigation into his campaign ties with Russia, and he would ask for retribution against, quote, tired Saturday Night Live on fake news NBC. Very unfair and should be looked into. Likewise, for many other shows, he tweeted, adding, this is the real collusion. The president of the United States was tilting at TV shows and threatening retribution for the ones he doesn't like. Spoken like one of the dictators he has publicly admired. Speaking of collusion, Trump also over the weekend tweeted a quote from Rush Limbaugh arguing that the Mueller investigators should be in jail. A rant about jailing his enemies. More dictators speak. Afraid of looking weak after losing his wall battle in Congress, Trump tried to look strong, issuing an emergency order demanding the jailing of law enforcement and the punishment of a TV comedy that made fun of him. In case you'd forgotten, none of this is normal. None of the some five dozen emergency declarations issued since the National Emergencies Act was passed in 1976 have ever been used to spend money for which Congress has already said no, in this case money for his wall. It's one thing to spend money Congress hasn't considered spending, but this is a defiance of Congress that voted for no wall money. This is the first time a president has declared an emergency to try to squeeze out a co-equal branch of government. The Constitution, with rare and minor exceptions, gives the power of the purse to Congress and Congress alone. Democrats didn't use the I-word, but did call Trump's order a gross abuse of power. And a former lawyer for the House Judiciary Committee says such gross abuse of power is grounds for impeachment. The question is no longer whether the president is a madman. The remaining questions are what kind of madness and what is its purpose? Is it the madness of an authoritarian keen to destroy American democracy or is it simply the madness of a narcissist who believes the presidency is all about him and who just happens to be destroying democracy in the process? Either way, democracy loses. Helping in its destruction is Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has shrugged off his constitutional duty to serve as part of a branch of government co-equal to the presidency. McConnell has surrendered congressional power to the president after getting painted into a political corner. For weeks, McConnell pleaded with Trump not to declare an emergency, warned him repeatedly not to anger members of his own party, and about the dangers of dividing the party's vote in the Senate, and about the dangers of setting a precedent for the next Democratic president. But when Trump declared the emergency, McConnell was among the first to endorse it. Why? Why the change? We know McConnell didn't want another government shut down. Was endorsing the emergency order part of a deal McConnell felt he had to make with Trump to avoid that second shutdown? There is no other explanation for a Senate leader to so willingly publicly support the bypassing of a co-equal branch of government, disrespecting its decisions in the process. 
Why else would a Senate leader back a move he knows is strongly opposed by his members? Why else would McConnell endorse a move that will be rejected by both Republicans and Democrats in both the House and the Senate? Because he knew the 2020 Republicans could not afford the albatross of a second consecutive government shutdown and agreeing to endorse the executive power grab was the only way to get Trump to sign a bill to keep the government open. To deal with an immediate political crisis, McConnell kicked a constitutional crisis down the road and kicked the constitutional power of Congress in the gut. So where would the money come from for this emergency wall Trump's been touting for more than two years now? He claims under the emergency declaration he's found not one or five billion dollars, but eight, eight billion. Less than one and a half billion comes from Congress for fencing and only for fencing. More than a half billion would come from the Treasury's forfeiture fund, money people and companies have been forced to surrender to the government in criminal cases. Over $3.5 billion would come from the military construction budget, although our acting defense secretary says he hasn't figured out yet what cuts will be made, except that it won't come out of military housing, which has a crisis of its own. It's the military money Trump could not get his hands on without the emergency order, and it is the biggest chunk of his $8 billion. The final $2.5 billion comes from a Pentagon fund for fighting the drug trade. Trump is robbing money from a program to fight drug trafficking to put up a wall he believes will fight drug trafficking. He's drawing money from the military budget after talking about fixing a depleted military. He's drawing money from project senators fought for on behalf of the states they represent. And this is $8 billion of taxpayer money that normally only Congress has the constitutional authority to spend. Because the wall money is clearly not coming from Mexico. Going into that emergency declaration, the Democrats didn't have much with which to challenge the president on legally. Sure, they could argue that the order is illegal because there is no emergency, but the law doesn't define emergency, seemingly a dead end. But then Trump himself changed all that that day in the Rose Garden by uttering the words, I didn't have to do this. Democrats and others who were already challenging the declaration in court now have a case in the very words of the man who issued an emergency declaration and then said it wasn't necessary. They also have a 1952 court ruling that says presidential emergency powers are weaker in cases in which the president is acting in defiance of Congress, as Trump is here. The first lawsuits against the declaration came that same day, including from those most likely to beat the president in court. The first suit was filed partly on behalf of three Texas landowners whose land would be taken by the government under Trump's emergency order. A citizens group filed that lawsuit on behalf of those landowners and on behalf of an environmental group. Quoting the group Public Citizen, We just sued Trump over his fake national emergency. If he gets away with this, there's no telling what the next concocted emergency will be who will be targeted, and what emergency powers will be claimed. Also on that same day, another citizen's group sued to force the administration to publish the documents and legal opinions related to the emergency order, saying Americans deserve to know the true basis to enact emergency powers to pay for a wall. By the next evening, another environmental group had filed suit. Now so has the American Civil Liberties Union, and now... California and at least 15 other states have filed a joint lawsuit focusing on presidential overreach and encroachment on a co-equal branch of government. They're saying the Trump emergency is unconstitutional. 
They're asking the court for immediate relief, promising to show how it will hurt them economically and ecologically. In announcing his emergency, Trump failed to show any evidence that declaration or the wall were needed, and he failed to show why the military and military money were needed. The law requires both of those, and the judges who will hear those lawsuits are unlikely to overlook that. Past courts have ruled that things Trump says, like, I didn't have to do this, do matter from a legal standpoint. What he didn't say may be important as well. As mentioned a moment ago, Democrats in Congress appear to have some legal options. But they also have legislative options, especially with so many Republican lawmakers equally or nearly as concerned about upsetting the constitutional balance of our government. We call upon our Republican colleagues to join us to defend the Constitution, said Pelosi and Schumer in a joint statement. The rejection of the emergency will get some Republican support from lawmakers concerned about a liberal president declaring national emergencies over climate change or guns. It's not likely, but it's not out of the question. Gun violence, after all, is at a 20-year high, while illegal border crossings are at a 20-year low. As emergencies go, the border ranks lower than gun violence. There is also Republican concern about robbing money from a military that was, in their view, being repaired and rebuilt. So we're expecting the House to reject Trump's emergency and then the Senate. We're expecting Trump to issue then his first veto, and we're expecting Republicans to fold and refuse to override that veto, leaving the final decision back in the hands of the courts. But it'll be a tough vote for many Republicans to back the president if it means losing projects in their districts and if it means losing their own elections in 2020. Plus, there's that whole upsetting the constitutional balance thing. And Democrats in Congress are already using their investigative powers, demanding the White House turn over the documents related to this emergency declaration. Whatever happens, the Trump administration will not likely be able to deliver on its plans to finish the wall in time for the 2020 election since the wall has many hurdles of its own to cross. The people have a say in this, too, of course, and they made their voices heard in public protest throughout the weekend. The wave of protests culminated on Monday, President's Day, with well over 10,000 people turning out in often frigid weather for demonstrations in nearly 250 cities around the country. One poll shows that a solid two-thirds of U.S. voters oppose using an emergency declaration to build a wall. A Marist poll for NPR and PBS NewsHour puts disapproval five points lower, but it reveals a much deeper problem for Trump. In that poll, more than six in ten disapprove of the emergency declaration. 58% don't think there's an emergency at all, and 57% think he's misusing his presidential powers. Worst of all for Trump, 54% say they're less likely to vote for him in 2020. Sure, his supporters are as dug in as ever, but there are fewer of them and not enough for Trump to win re-election. He's lost a majority of independent voters and the non-college white voters who boosted him in 2016. Non-college white voters disapprove of this emergency declaration by a 10-point margin, and more of them say they won't vote for Trump again than say they will. He won't have Hillary Clinton to kick around anymore, and he won't be gathering support from the Obama supporters who didn't like Clinton. Democrats are more energized than they were in 2016, Republicans less so. And by continuing to act against public opinion and against the public's will, Trump's 2020 re-election dreams get diminished every week. The Senate Intelligence Committee wants to hear 
from an American businessman based in Moscow who may testify about embarrassing material Russia has on Donald Trump dating back to the 1990s. The committee's been trying to talk with David Giovannis for several months. Giovannis helped organize Trump's trip to Moscow in 96 as Trump began to pursue his dream of building a Trump Tower in the Russian capital. Giovannis also worked for Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska, who's connected with Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort. Some FBI employees cried when they heard that Jim Comey had been fired. Acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe, on the other hand, swung into action, getting updates on the Russia investigation and launching a new investigation into Trump's apparent obstruction of justice in that investigation in the firing of James Comey. The investigation was into the president and whether he was an agent, willingly or unwillingly, on behalf of Russia, the fierce adversary that attacked the U.S. election process to help Trump and hurt his competition. McCabe says the investigation was launched by him because of Trump's own words. McCabe says Trump told Rod Rosenstein to include Russia in the memo that Trump had ordered Rosenstein to write to justify Comey's firing. Trump told NBC's Lester Holt he'd fire James Comey, quote, because of Russia. Trump went on to tell Russians in the Oval Office that firing Comey had relieved great pressure on him. In a White House intelligence briefing, McCabe says Trump refused to believe his own people when they explained that North Korea remains a nuclear threat. McCabe says Trump responded, I don't care. I believe Putin. The Russian authoritarian who wanted Trump to be president had told him that the talk of a North Korean nuclear threat is a hoax, and Trump believed Putin over U.S. intelligence. Trump was and is trying to, quoting McCabe, publicly undermine the investigation. And McCabe says it appeared as though Trump was working for Russia. Interesting sidebar, McCabe says he gave a heads up about the investigation to key Republicans in Congress at the start, and that none of them objected. Underscored, no Republican objected. That would support that the investigation was not politically motivated, as Trump and congressional Republicans have complained, that it was instead launched with bipartisan approval. McCabe says Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein was not joking when Rosenstein offered to wear a wire in conversations with the president and that he was right to assess how many cabinet votes there might be in favor of invoking the 25th Amendment to remove a president unfit to serve. McCabe quotes Rosenstein as saying, I never get searched when I go into the White House. They wouldn't know it was there. Senate Republicans now say they plan to call both of these men to testify about what Lindsey Graham calls a stunning revelation, what some Republicans are calling a bureaucratic coup. Trump tweeted that Rosenstein's consideration of the 25th Amendment amounts to treason. Historically, traitors do not turn to the Constitution as a weapon of treason. Andrew McCabe says his goal when launching the investigation into Trump was to protect the work that had gone into and come out of the Russia probe. He writes in his book, I was very concerned that I was able to put the Russia case on absolutely solid ground in an indelible fashion that were I removed quickly or reassigned or fired, that the case could not be closed or vanish in the night without a trace. McCabe was fired from the FBI just hours before his retirement for being less than candid with Republicans investigating Justice Department activities. Rod Rosenstein, who's been expected to leave his job with the arrival of a new attorney general, says he'll be gone in about three weeks.
The Republican-led Senate confirmed William Barr as Trump's new attorney general, and he has since been sworn in and reported for work. Questions linger about Barr's allegiance to Trump after he wrote a memo to the White House condemning the Mueller probe. Barr's also said he won't recuse himself from the case. Conveniently, Barr's son-in-law has just been hired as a lawyer for the White House Counsel's Office. Ethics experts call that concerning. But William Barr is now in charge of the Mueller investigation, just as it appears to be coming to an end. Barr is the guy who will determine whether we see the Mueller report or which parts of it and in what form. He hasn't made any clear promises. Barr now says the Mueller report will be finished by as soon as next week, perhaps Monday, when he says he will then give a summary of that report to Congress, as the law requires. There could then be weeks of debate over what should or should not be made public, and Barr will avoid releasing anything adjacent to Trump's upcoming meeting with North Korea's Kim Jong-un so as not to interfere with that presidential mission. But if Barr fails to release a mostly unredacted report, House Democrats say they will after subpoenaing the report. They also have the option of calling Mueller to testify publicly, as it went with the special prosecutor in the Watergate hearings that brought down Richard Nixon. Meanwhile, the investigations of the federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York can pick up where Mueller leaves off, and there's every indication they will. CNN reports that over three days this past week, Mueller's people were seen carrying out of their offices large boxes, presumably transferring documents and evidence to those prosecutors in Manhattan. Stock up on popcorn and stay tuned. In fact, get extra popcorn. Michael Cohen's sentencing date has been moved from this week to May. He gets an extra two months with his family in exchange for his testimony for two congressional committees. A week from today, Cohen will testify behind closed doors for the House Intelligence Committee. But the day before that, this coming Wednesday, Cohen will testify for the House Oversight Committee in a public session that will likely be televised. The committee has no intention of stepping on Robert Mueller's toes. The Oversight Committee plans to ask Cohen about Trump's debts and payments related to influencing the 2016 election, which include the hush money paid to a porn star and a Playboy model. They plan to ask about possible campaign finance law violations in the course of those hush money payments. They'll ask about possible tax dodging by Trump, his possible conflicts of interest, and about the truthfulness of his statements. The Mueller investigation that's been so quiet for so long has brought us news every few days now through court filings. This week, prosecutors revealed for the first time they have evidence that Trump advisor Roger Stone was communicating with WikiLeaks at around the time it posted Democratic emails that had been stolen by Russian hackers. The Mueller team's court papers revealed Stone was also in touch with the Russian intelligence hackers who had stolen those emails, known online as Guccifer 2.0. And they revealed that Stone was simultaneously in touch with the Trump campaign. Quoting these court documents, the government obtained and executed dozens of search warrants on various accounts used to facilitate the transfer of stolen documents for release, as well as to discuss the timing and promotion of their release. Trump's friends since the early 1990s of self-proclaimed political dirty trickster Roger Stone appears to be the key to the case to prove conspiracy and collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Roger Stone, a key figure in the collusion case, is in deep trouble and digging himself deeper. The judge in his case slapped a gag order on Stone, not to silence him entirely, but to keep him and his lawyers from 
say, having another defiant press conference on the steps of the courthouse or anywhere near the courthouse as they did after Stone's first court appearance following his dramatic arrest. But the judge also warned Stone she might expand that gag order if he gave her reason to do so. And then on Monday of this week, Stone tempted fate by posting a photo of the judge on Instagram with a gun sight's crosshairs next to her head and calling her case a show trial. Over the course of the day, Stone removed the crosshairs and eventually removed the post itself as he and his lawyers hastily prepared a mistake-riddled court document of their own, apologizing for the Instagram post, saying it wasn't meant to be a threat. Judge Amy Berman Jackson is a no-nonsense judge, and Roger Stone had poked the bear. She's ordered Stone to report to court this afternoon to explain why he shouldn't be further gagged or even jailed while he awaits trial on seven federal felonies. The judge had already given him a break by not sending him straight to jail, as she had done with Paul Manafort. Judge Amy Berman Jackson had gone easy on Stone, allowing him to walk free in spite of those serious charges, And then Stone posted a photo of her with crosshairs next to her head and called the trial a show trial. The judge has already ruled against Stone's request for a new judge, a request he made when he learned that his case had been officially linked to the case against 13 Russians accused of staging the election attack, a case also being heard by Judge Amy Berman Jackson. Judge Berman Jackson is also the judge in one of those cases against Paul Manafort. And she's now considering Mueller's recommendation that Manafort get up to 25 years in prison, undoubtedly a life sentence, for a man about to turn 70. The sentencing recommendation says Manafort's crime pattern shows him to be someone who believes the law does not apply to him. Mueller argues Manafort has given no reason to give him a break on that sentence and that he has, in fact, given reason to make it tougher. Judge Berman Jackson had already ruled that Manafort lied intentionally in an effort to hide the truth and to deceive and mislead prosecutors. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders was on board Air Force One in 2017 when Trump drafted his misleading statement about Don Jr.'s Trump Tower meeting with a Russian lawyer tied to the Kremlin. Sarah Sanders has now been also interviewed by the investigators for special counsel Robert Mueller. Sanders told the nation that Trump did not dictate the statement that was drafted in the air that day. Trump's lawyers have since admitted he did dictate the letter. That means Sarah Sanders was lying about what had happened. She hasn't said what questions she was asked by Mueller's prosecutors. Separate from Mueller, an investigation is being conducted by prosecutors for the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And while Team Trump can try to use executive privilege to avoid cooperating with the Mueller probe... It cannot use executive privilege to stave off the investigators of the SDNY. The Southern District can also investigate what Mueller cannot with jurisdiction over Trump's campaign and his businesses because those things are not covered by executive privilege. And SDNY is already investigating both of those things. And while Mueller may believe he cannot indict the president, the Southern District of New York may believe it can. Those Manhattan prosecutors have already implicated Trump in a campaign finance crime. And as the Mueller investigation winds down, the SDNY can keep on ticking, continuing to use information provided to it by the special counsel's office. The Southern District can pick up the investigation wherever Mueller leaves off, especially if Trump's new attorney general, William Barr, tries to keep the Mueller report from public view. The SDNY's cooperating witnesses include former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, 
former Trump finance guy Alan Weisselberg, former Trump campaign co-chair Rick Gates, and National Enquirer chairman David Pecker. You can gauge the power of these New York prosecutors by Trump's avoidance of them when he continues to attack Mueller and congressional Democrats on Twitter. Trump has never publicly attacked the SDNY. It's as if it's the one law enforcement agency he fears the most. Behind the scenes, however, Trump has apparently tried to interfere in those Southern District investigations in one of the week's biggest stories. Trump laid the groundwork for this interference in the earliest days of his presidency, firing a number of federal prosecutors, including the one that served as U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He replaced Pre Barraro with Jeffrey Berman, a Trump loyalist who, on taking the job, recused himself from his office's investigation. Late last year, Trump installed Matt Whitaker, another Trump loyalist, to be the acting attorney general. Until the new guy got there, Trump supporter William Barr. The New York Times reports that Trump called Whitaker to ask if his guy Berman could be put in charge of the Southern District's investigation into Michael Cohen. But Whitaker could not put Berman in charge of the Cohen case since Berman had already recused himself. Trump was nearly as unhappy about Berman's recusal as he was about the recusal of former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and that is when Trump also turned his back on Matt Whitaker, since he had proven to be no help either. Even though it had failed, it was an attempt to obstruct justice, and under the law, even a failed attempt at breaking the law is still breaking the law. The Times reports that Matt Whitaker testified to the House Judiciary Committee that he was never pressured by Trump or the White House about the Cohen case, but Trump did call Whitaker after the Cohen raid, and Whitaker told friends that his job at the Justice Department was to, quote, jump on a grenade for the president. The Judiciary Committee now wants to talk with Matt Whitaker again to clear up this discrepancy between his claim that he was not pressured by Trump and committee witnesses who say he was. This meddling is all part of Trump's ongoing war against justice in the Russia case. But now we know it wasn't just words. It was actions. He's condemned the investigations into him nearly 1,200 times over the past couple of years. He calls the Mueller probe a witch hunt nearly every day now. He condemns its witnesses as rats, and he condemns the media that report on the investigation. He's fired the people in a position to investigate him, one after another, from Preet Bharara to Jeff Sessions, replacing all of them with people loyal to him, and then applying pressure on those people merely by mentioning their fired predecessors. He's also tried to fire Robert Mueller. He's even used Paul Manafort as an undercover spy to get a peek inside the Mueller investigation. The Times offers that Trump's lawyers tampered with witnesses, dangling presidential pardons to Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort to assure their loyalty in the face of criminal charges. The list of justice obstruction goes on and on. And this has been going on for two years, as far back as the first month of his presidency, when he wrote to Chris Christie, The Russia thing is all over now because I fired Mike Flynn. Flynn met with the Russians. That was the problem. I fired Flynn. It's over. It wasn't over. And neither were Trump's attacks on the nation's top law enforcement mechanisms. Neither was the obstruction of justice from within and without. Obstruction of justice interfering with law enforcement were grounds for impeachment for Richard Nixon. They could be grounds for impeachment again. Vice President Mike Pence paused for applause in his speech at the Munich Security Conference Saturday in Germany 
The word applause was written into his speech to remind him to make room for it. Not an unusual practice. But we have the transcript of that speech, complete with built-in pauses, as well as video of what actually happened. Other representatives of the world's leaders were gathered for the security summit as Pence told them he was there, quote, on behalf of a champion of freedom and of a strong national defense. I bring greetings, said Pence, from the 45th president of the United States of America, President Donald Trump. He paused to allow time for applause. No one did. Not a single clap. Pence waited five painful seconds for the applause to come for his boss, and it never did. So he went on. He was also expecting applause after America is leading on the world stage once again. He didn't wait as long that time for the applause that again didn't come. But there was another painful silence after Pence said it was time for European countries to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal as the Trump administration has done. Even chirping crickets would have been welcome at that moment. Trump and his policies are not popular on the world stage. And that cold shoulder silence that included even our closest allies isn't the half of it. The past week found Trump officials making relations worse, not better. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was conducting what was billed as a European goodwill tour. On that tour, Pompeo met with the corrupt leader of Hungary who suppresses the media and protests while spewing hatred. The Obama administration wouldn't touch the guy. Pompeo was happy to. Then it was off to Slovakia, where a leading journalist was murdered last year after exposing corruption there. He then met up with Vice President Pence at a Middle East conference in Poland. They wanted to talk about ganging up on Iran. The Europeans weren't having it, so they talked about everything else of Middle Eastern concern. A German official told the Washington Post, We fool ourselves if we think Trump is just an aberration. Trump is a symptom more than a cause. That indicates the Europeans are not just highly skeptical of our president, they're highly skeptical of us, the American people, these days. Likely Democratic presidential hopefuls Joe Biden and John Hickenlooper were there trying to ensure European leaders that the U.S. will soon be back to its old self. Europeans are hopeful about that, but at the moment, not optimistic. They worry their nearly 75-year leader in liberal democracy is lost, and they're in the market for a replacement. A longtime analyst of German-American relations told the Washington Post, quote, a majority of French and Germans now trust Russia and China more than the United States. The next grown-up to be marched out of the White House appears to be National Intelligence Director Dan Coats. Trump was reportedly enraged at Coates for telling the truth about the nation's security threats in recent testimony for Congress. Those truths pointed to Russia and China and North Korea as our biggest threats, with nothing about any threat at the Mexican border. It made Trump, who's claimed the opposite of all of these things, look stupid. The Washington Post reports Trump now considers Coates not loyal and not on the team, and that Coates is on very thin ice. The Post's Greg Sargent posits that it's another case of Trump rejecting reality. Salon.com's Bob Seska knows exactly what dimension Trump's living in. Thank you, Buzz. Imagine waiting in an examination room at your doctor's office when suddenly bounding through the door comes your doctor. But instead of carrying himself like a normal physician, he's dressed like Dr. House MD. Worse yet, he's unshaved and haggard, pelting you with insults while choking down a handful of opioids just like the famous TV doctor. 
Not only would you and the entire staff at the hospital become deeply concerned by your doctor's weird, fictitious behavior, but you'd probably decide to switch doctors, someone sane, perhaps, someone tethered to reality. And after getting dressed and dashing out of the hospital, you'll quickly be followed by security guards escorting your lunatic doctor from the building. This disconnect between the real world and the world of televised fiction isn't merely speculative. It's actually happening in real life, and it's far worse than one doctor flipping his gourd. For the last couple of years, you've probably noticed how time and time again, Donald Trump and his minion are perpetually being contravened by reality. Most recently, Roger Stone posted a photo of Judge Amy Berman Jackson, the jurist presiding over his criminal proceedings. The photo includes Judge Jackson and a firearm crosshairs along with a snarky fundraising message about the case and the judge. Almost immediately, the judge summoned Stone to court to answer for his post and why he shouldn't have his release revoked. The problem here isn't simply that Stone threatened the life of the judge holding his fate in her hands. The larger problem is that Stone, Trump, and the entire cabal are continuously attempting to superimpose the performance art they see on Fox News and AM Talk Radio onto real-world actions. Whether they believe what they see and hear from the conservative entertainment complex is almost irrelevant. That said, the rogues gallery is clearly under the mistaken impression that Fox News and talk radio ridiculousness applies to actual things like legal defenses and presidential behavior. In the case of Roger Stone's Instagram post, he obviously thought the crosshairs photo would be acceptable, chiefly because Fox News spends a lot of time pandering to easily deceived viewers by presenting a fictitious view of reality while demonizing institutions and experts alike. The real world, on the other hand, recoils at the gibberish. This theory also explains why so many advisors and other bureaucrats are so baffled when confronting Trump about what's actually happening in the world. Report after report has indicated that Trump rejects government data, stats, and studies in lieu of Fox News propaganda, and occasionally the creepy voices in his head. The other night on The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell, former acting director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, described a briefing with Trump about those compounds in Maryland and New York occupied by Russian spies. Ignoring the intelligence about the Russians, of course, Trump instead asked the FBI agents in attendance about why we're not at war with Venezuela. Shockingly, he continued by suggesting Venezuela has all the oil and it's practically in our backyard. So why not? Naturally, the agents were baffled and deeply concerned by Trump's insane non-sequitur about Venezuela. However, such a tangent would be welcome on Fox News, rather than the obvious deep state Russian witch hunt business. Likewise, Trump routinely tweets out affirmations from Fox and friends, only to be faced with puzzled looks by the rest of the world, maybe some of his allies in Congress, too. No wonder they're all so angry. No wonder they feel cornered. Trump and his red hat army believe what they see on Fox News, yet when reality steamrolls the gibberish, they're confused and outraged by the chasm between the cable news agitprop and the truth. They don't know that Fox News mornings and primetime shows are advertised as entertainment, not news. Fox News was never about creating workable policy positions. It's always been about offering confirmation bias for far-right hooples and bigots. Then along came Donald Trump, who, whether by brainwashing or by a conscious decision to co-opt Fox News, weaponized the insanity from the network as the centerpiece of his campaign strategy. Trump, deliberately or not, is the Fox News president. Every move he makes appears to be filtered through the prism of how a typical viewer of the network will perceive his actions. 
Would a Fox News viewer like it if Trump told Hillary Clinton to her face that he'd send her to jail? Of course they would. They'd also love it if Trump eschewed presidential behavior, replacing it with how Rush Limbaugh talks or how Sean Hannity berates a guest. Fox News is to news what professional wrestling is to Olympic competition. It's all pure fiction, and yet the president acts like it's reality. Indeed, this phenomenon is far worse than your doctor pretending to be a drug-addicted, semi-crippled a-hole. The president is making decisions that are entirely disconnected from real-world problems because he believes the actual fake news he sees on television every damn day. And this president has a list of the nuclear codes in his pocket so far believe it or not we've been lucky he hasn't destroyed the place yet but there's still time here's to reality finally finally putting a stop to it all i'm bob seska for buzzer bank news and comment fox news the pro wrestling of journalism i love that thank you my friend get more of bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash bob seska show or tuesdays and thursdays at realmnetwork.com He'll have a fresh edition this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. One interesting and positive side effect of Trump's trade tariffs on China, food banks in the U.S. for feeding the hungry have a plentiful supply of meat and produce, food that would have otherwise been sold to China. Quoting an executive from a food bank that serves three states, it's not just a little more. We're getting about twice as much food as we normally get. The news for food banks is just as good in New York and Oregon as it is in Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky. But it's disastrous news for the American farmer as the expiration date on millions of bushels of unsold soybeans approaches when they begin to rot. The Army's top brass says it will make new rules for military housing, renegotiate its contracts with housing developers, and test tens of thousands of homes for vermin, insects, mold, and lead paint. This after the media, so many love to hate, exposed the dangerous conditions in which military families are being forced to live, some of them literally sickened by those conditions. Reuters broke the story about the tens of thousands of soldiers' families that have lived in gross and unsafe conditions. The Army has taken the lead on fixing this problem, and the Navy says it's close behind. At first, the Army said it would wait to hear how Trump's raid on the military construction budget might hurt its chances for improving that housing. Since then, both the Pentagon and the administration have made clear no wall money will be robbed from the housing budget. With teacher strikes settled in Los Angeles and Denver, it was back to West Virginia where teachers struck last year. They were striking again over what they see as retaliation for what they had won last year, a complicated bill in the legislature that would have created special savings accounts for parents who pay for private school and would have created West Virginia's first charter schools, which have eroded public education in much of the country. Just nine hours after the state's teachers walked out, the West Virginia House of Delegates voted to table the bill, effectively killing it. Today that strike is over. West Virginia teachers had done it again. It was they who started a round of change-making teacher strikes that spread last year through Kentucky, Oklahoma, Arizona, Washington State, and now this year, Los Angeles and Denver, ultimately circling back to old Kentucky. Another week, another mass murder by a gunman. Five people died Friday at a manufacturing company in suburban Chicago at the hands of a man who'd just been fired and who legally shouldn't have had a gun. The gun was never confiscated after the man ignored a court order to surrender it. 
The gunman was killed by police in a shootout. Heartfelt condolences to all the victims and their families, tweeted the president, adding, America is with you. But are we really? In Vallejo, California, six police officers fired multiple rounds at an armed young black man who was sleeping in his car outside of Taco Bell. The officers say they fired out of fear for their own safety when they saw a gun in the sleeping man's lap. They say he was unresponsive when they first tried to awaken him and that he then moved suddenly. Willie McCoy, rapper Willie Bo, died on the scene at 20 years old. A quote from Willie's cousin, No one trusts the police in Vallejo. Don't think the 2020 election season has already begun? Social media tells a different story, already attacking Democratic candidates using disinformation and using racial and other prejudices to more sharply divide voters. It's a coordinated assault, and it appears to have foreign roots, likely Russian, according to analysts. Whoever's doing it is trying to sow discord and chaos into the Democratic races. It appears to involve the same group that spread disinformation during the 2018 campaign about migrant caravans, even advocating violence against immigrants. It's more sophisticated than the 2016 interference, this time using 200 accounts, some of them synthetic, connected to tens of thousands of real Americans considered likely to believe the divisive material being posted. Politico reports the prime targets of these false memes so far have been Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, and Bernie Sanders. Twitter and Facebook had no comment for Politico. The memes spike each time a new candidate announces. Sanders this week officially joined Cory Booker, Julian Castro, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, and the aforementioned Harris, Warren, O'Rourke, and Sanders in a mind-blurring field of Democratic presidential hopefuls. That makes 11, and there will be more. Sanders quickly took the fundraising lead with over 200,000 people donating a total of more than $6 million in the first day of his campaign. Trump already has one Republican challenger as well. Former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, Weld ran as a vice presidential candidate with libertarian Gary Johnson in 2016, but has since reverted back to the Republican Party. Clearly, Weld hopes to appeal to Republicans and independents who don't want Trump to have a second term. And that makes 12 candidates and counting. Butterflies at the border, gunfire at the theater, and it's not murder, it's art. In the final segment, up next. Seriously, thank you for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year-round at home and at work. Your use of that link helps keep the newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your everyday shopping button. I get a little commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership purchase through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just click the Amazon logo at buzzburbank.com. You land right on your very own Amazon page and then bookmark that. On your desktop browser, the Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzzburbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free, independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. And thank you. Trump's promise to revive the coal industry isn't taking hold. The Tennessee Valley Authority has voted to retire two of its coal-fired power plants by 2023, despite pleas from Trump and Mitch McConnell to keep them open. Officials say the plants won't be missed, and their shutdowns would save taxpayers $320 million. 
not to mention a cleaner environment with fewer carbons spewing into our warming atmosphere. One immediate ecological problem involves hipsters and cacti, specifically the saguaro cactus. These prickly succulents have become a staple of home decorators around the world, from China's middle class to Japanese gardeners to European cafe owners and American hipsters. Cactus sales in the U.S. grew by two-thirds over the past six years, and the cacti don't grow very fast, so demand is reducing supply. The saguaro cactus that's found in Saguaro National Park outside Tucson, Arizona, seems to be a favorite. And that explains the holes in the ground, found by park rangers, where some of those saguaros grew to be 40, even 60 feet high. On the black market, one foot of saguaro is worth 100 bucks, and there are landscapers who will buy them. The park rangers have a new weapon, however, against the cactus rustlers. They're implanting tracking chips in the plants. Quoting one official, if you steal a cactus, we'll find you. The butterflies at the border may be safe from Trump's border wall after all. The budget bill passed last week included a last-minute provision to protect the National Butterfly Center and the wildlife refuges in Santa Ana and the lower Rio Grande Valley. It also added protection for an historic Catholic chapel on the U.S.-Mexican border. It was on Tuesday, February 5th, that Pope Francis publicly acknowledged for the first time an ongoing problem of priests and bishops sexually abusing nuns. The week before that, a Vatican magazine mentioned nuns having abortions or giving birth to the children of priests. The Pope was asked about that on board the papal plane. It's true, said Francis, adding, there are priests and bishops who have done that. He told reporters the church has already begun a path to deal with that problem. It has been a public concern among Catholic nuns since at least the early 1990s. It was Wednesday, February 13th, when the Catholic diocese in Virginia and New Jersey released lists naming hundreds of clergy credibly accused of sexually abusing children. Fifty such priests have just been outed in Illinois. 263 priests have been named in a San Francisco Bay Area lawsuit. And then three days later, on Saturday, February 16th, the Vatican kicked former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick out of the clergy. He was stripped of his priesthood, defrocked and laicized after the church found him guilty of sexual abuse of children and adults. McCarrick is the former Archbishop of Washington, D.C., and was considered a power broker in the church hierarchy. He's now been hit with the most damning punishment ever delivered to a former cardinal, in the modern Roman Catholic Church. Another two days, and it was Monday of this week, the 18th. That was the day we learned the Vatican has a long-standing secret protocol for dealing with the children of priests and their mothers. That news came just as Catholic leaders from around the world gathered in Rome this week to prevent future child sexual abuse. Victims of that abuse have also gathered in Rome, including the nuns who were also sexually assaulted. This has been an historically grim February for the Roman Catholic Church. You, the consumer. The Census Bureau says retail sales in December were down nearly 2%, the biggest drop in nearly 10 years, similar to the drop in September 2009, a few months into the Great Recession. What does it mean? Experts blame the stock market drop in December, the government shutdown, and the equally harsh weather. The December report just came out, Delayed by Trump's 35-day government shutdown. 
Walmart, on the other hand, had a gangbusters fourth quarter. Its holiday sales were up more than 4%. And holding its own against Amazon, Walmart's online sales were up 43%. The disappearance of Toys R Us had something to do with this. Walmart will open 10 new stores this year, bringing the total to more than 4,700. 90% of Americans now live within 10 miles of a Walmart. That's bad news for retailers like Payless Shoes. Payless is closing all 2,100 of its stores here in the U.S. Founded in Topeka, Kansas in 1956, Payless will have stores in nearly 40 countries. Those stores will remain open. Here in the U.S., some stores will close next month, the rest by May. The FAA is investigating Southwest Airlines for miscalculating the weight of the baggage in its cargo base, sometimes by as much as a 1,000 pounds. Journalists at the Wall Street Journal and USA Today brought this to light. Also this week, Southwest has canceled about 100 flights a day, taking up to 40 planes a day out of service for maintenance. This urgent maintenance was prompted by journalists at CBS News who exposed the pressuring of maintenance technicians to avoid reporting potential safety problems they detect. Darn those journalists and their fake news. Facebook is now negotiating with the U.S. government a record multi-billion dollar fine for the company's fast and loose policy on privacy. It would be the biggest fine ever slapped on a tech company if they can settle on a number. If they cannot, the government can take Facebook to court in what would undoubtedly be an ugly, long battle. Facebook privacy is also a big concern in Europe, where lawmakers are aiming new privacy laws there at both Facebook and Google. Facebook built its massive advertising business with data it got from you, us. The tighter privacy rules just made money-making considerably harder for Facebook, at least in Europe. And similar rules have been discussed here, but not implemented. Facebook puts great effort into keeping it that way. The bad news about this year's flu season is that it has sickened nearly 18 million people in the U.S., 2 million new cases last week, so the season is far from over. This week's report comes out tomorrow. The good news is the number of people hit with the flu is down from last year, and it's a milder flu, except in the southeastern part of the country where a tougher strain of flu is at play. We got a much better vaccine this year, nearly twice as effective as last year's, although most people still don't get their shots. There's a Vancouver in the U.S. state of Washington, and there's a Vancouver, of course, in Canada. They not only have the same name, right now they have the same problem, a measles outbreak. Vancouver, Canada has confirmed about 10 cases so far this month. The outbreak was traced to some of the area's French language schools. There, it spread from school to school on the school buses that carried children to and from multiple schools. In fact, one man has admitted that the outbreak started with his son. The family had traveled to Vietnam on a vacation earlier this year, and the boy returned with measles. The measles were carried here from Vietnam. The Vancouver man says the measles outbreak may be his fault since he had never gotten his son vaccinated. He says it was the debate of 10 or 12 years ago about the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine as a cause of autism that prompted him to skip the boy's shots. Misinformation. The boy's father says he now knows better as his other children are being tested. 
Doctors say that if you're not already immune, it is not too late to get vaccinated. Darla Shine said this past week that it's okay for kids to get measles because measles, she explained, keep you healthy and fight cancer. Darla Shine, wife of White House Communications Chief Bill Shine, has been an anti-vaxxer for years. Bring back our childhood diseases, she tweeted, as Washington State's measles outbreak, also likely started by anti-vaxxers, spreads now across the U.S. Wisconsin's new Democratic governor has called for the legalization of medical marijuana, decriminalizing its position and making CBD oil available to all. Governor Tony Evers says it's time for Wisconsin to join the more than two dozen other states that have legalized medical marijuana. Evers is a cancer survivor. Alita Battle Angel was the number one movie this week with a $28 million bounty. Lego 2 was number two, assembling $21 million. At the bottom of this week's top ten is Oscar-nominated Green Book. But the How to Train Your Dragon sequel comes out this week, expected to open with maybe $45 million in ticket sales in the U.S. and Canada. It's already made $175 million overseas, and Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 96%. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please find them all by clicking the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Well, it appears they won't finish the Oscar ceremony inside of three hours after all, even without a host. The Academy had planned to fight falling ratings by giving some awards during commercial breaks, including cinematography, the people who actually shoot the movie. The crucial editors would have also gotten short shrift, as would the equally important costumers and hairstylists. Their commercial break acceptance speeches would have been capsulized later in the show. Powerful directors, however, spoke up in defense of especially cinematographers and editors. So we're now hearing they won't get the show in inside of three hours after all. On the upside, Queen will perform in a salute to the Freddie Mercury biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. Adam Lambert will sing lead as he has off and on for Queen these past nine years. Fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld died this week at age 85. He was the creative force behind the Chanel label for years. Among his famous quotes... Sweatpants are a sign of defeat. You lost control of your life, so you bought some sweatpants. CNN says it has seen a VHS videotape that appears to show R&B superstar R. Kelly having sex with an underage girl. In the video, she calls him daddy and describes her genitals as those of a 14-year-old. Kelly's identity as the man in that video could be verified thanks to a mole on the man's back just left of his spine. The Cook County State's Attorney's Office in Chicago, where R. Kelly is headquartered, has not yet commented. Chicago police are still working the Jesse Smollett case, and it's become a whole different case, one in which he is now the prime suspect. The young gay African-American actor is now charged with two felonies, filing a false police report and creating a disturbance. And this morning, he's turned himself in and is now under arrest. Smollett could also be forced to repay the city for the hundreds of detective man-hours that have gone into the case. Police were investigating whether the Empire Star staged a hoax in reporting that he'd gotten a threatening letter and then that he'd been attacked by men who'd thrown a noose over his neck while shouting racial and homophobic slurs and shouting, this is MAGA country, Empire N-word. It now appears Smollett paid two men to assault him. They say Smollett was disappointed he hadn't gotten more of an outpouring of support after revealing that threatening letter 
written with cutout magazine letters. Smollett got his outpouring after making his assault claim. Fox has no comment. The producers of Empire are reportedly considering suspending Smollett. Gunfire in a stage play can sound very real. You need to know that if you're among the millions of Americans seeing the musical Hamilton. At a performance last week in San Francisco, some people ran from the auditorium when they heard that gunfire, but it wasn't just the gunfire. At that same moment, an alarm had gone off as a medical emergency team grabbed a defibrillator to revive a woman. At the sound of the alarm, the theater was evacuated, including the cast and crew. Three people were injured in the stampede from the auditorium, one with a broken leg, two others with moderate injuries. The woman who needed the fibrillation was in critical condition. The audience returned to their seats and applauded when the cast and crew returned to the stage, only to be informed that the night's performance had been canceled and that they were all invited back on the house. There had been enough drama that night already. The International Toy Fair opens this weekend in New York with over a 1,000 manufacturers, distributors, and importers from more than 100 countries to show off the latest toys. It's the biggest toy show on this half of the planet. It's at that show where deals are made that will determine the top toy choices this year. Just over 300 shopping days left till the holidays. So three cows walk into a supermarket and... In Hong Kong, a trio of cows wandered into the fusion store in Wo, where they were videoed grazing. The cows went straight for the produce section, of course. They certainly don't eat meat. In Ireland, a man brought his horse into a grocery store, the Tesco store in Finglass, Dublin, and led it by its reins up and down the aisles as he did his shopping. We still don't know why. But there's a rabbit in Finland that is no one-trick pony. This mixed-breed pet bunny was videoed performing 20 different tricks inside of a minute to win a Guinness World Record. Quoting its owner, My advice to all pet owners is to never underestimate their pets. Every animal has a talent. It's up to the owner to find out what their pet is good at. The owner says her bunny can actually do 30 different tricks, including a celebratory high-five. A man in Germany is no longer allowed to own a gun. He lost that privilege when a court ruled that he may not own a rifle and he may no longer have a hunting permit. That was the administrative court ruling in Munich after an incident two years ago in which the man was shot in the arm by his dog. The man is no longer allowed to own a gun. He is allowed to keep the dog. Home buyer beware. In Philadelphia, a real estate developer was checking out a home and found a feature that wasn't in the listing, a booby trap. On the stairs, a trip line connected to a crutch hanging overhead with a knife that swings downward to slash an intruder in the head. The developer spotted the trip line just before his construction manager was headed upstairs. They used a rod to trip the wire. The developer says he's never seen anything like it, calling it Home Alone, Philly style. In Spain, two altar boys have been arrested for putting weed in a cathedral's incense burner. The censer burner, as it's called, is used for the Holy Epiphany. Police say the boys came up with the idea during Christmas Eve Mass. The boys say, we bought no more than a half kilo and we drop it in. We're sure people left the cathedral happier than ever. The criminal charges have been dropped, but the boys are no longer altar boys. It could be argued 
They never really were. That's not murder. It's art. In London, police broke through a glass door to investigate what appeared to be a person in distress. It turned out to be a mannequin. The owner of the store says the police might have known that if they'd read the sign that said art exhibit. He says he arrived at the store thinking it had been vandalized and didn't realize it was the police who had broken the glass door until he found the note they had left behind. Last week, police in Wednesfield, England, answered a call about a bloody hand in a canal. It was a plastic hand painted red to look bloody. London's wave of mannequin murders apparently continues. Delaware musician Justin Corner dreamed he'd fallen asleep in his car and that someone had jumped into the front seat. Dream? Meet reality, in which Justin really was sleeping in the back seat of his car and someone really did jump into the front seat. But the next thing Justin remembers is waking up from his dream to discover the car had crashed after driving through bushes and leaving tire tracks on the lawn. Police believe someone had tried to steal the car but bailed out after spotting Justin in the back seat. Now it's Pepsi for those who think fast. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, a man stole a Pepsi delivery truck while its driver was in the back unloading sodas. The driver jumped safely out the back. No one got hurt, but with the back door still open, boxes of canned soda popped as they formed a wake behind the pilfered Pepsi truck. Police finally stopped the thief who jumped out of the truck and ran away, forgetting to set the brake, allowing the Pepsi truck to roll into the back of a school bus. The bus was empty, so again, no one got hurt, and the Pepsi perp was apprehended. The man's girlfriend confirms his excuse. He was trying to get to the airport to stop her after an argument, just like in a movie. A man tried to launch his jet ski with his Porsche Cayenne sports car at a boat launch in Perth, Australia. He forgot to disconnect the jet ski, however, before it could pull his expensive Porsche underwater. And finally... Waiting until 3 a.m. on a Monday morning, a Tulsa, Oklahoma man aimed his car at the glass doors of Hustler Hollywood, an adult novelty shop. Video shows him getting out of the car and marching to just one section, the section with the lingerie and sex toys, and scooping up about 400 bucks worth. The owner of Hustler Hollywood says it'll actually cost him more than that to fix the doors. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.